from Television City in Hollywood. Ang Ang, Jason Bullitt here. I hope you're all safe and well from the coronavirus pandemic, practicing social distancing and all that. I just want to let you know that I'm doing well. I'm holding up real good, and so is Otis the Wonder Dog. So, as can be imagined, the 100th episode of the Keep It To Yourself podcast has been delayed till all this blows over. You know, the rule about social gatherings and all that. Governor Cuomo clamping down on that in the name of, quote-unquote, flattening the curve. So, for the time being, every once in a while, I'm going to come back and invade your ear holes and bring back a classic episode of the Keep It To Yourself podcast dug up from the archives. Well, if you're a professional wrestling fan, and who isn't these days, there is the road to WrestleMania, and what a rocky road it has been this year thanks to the COVID-19 slash coronavirus pandemic. WrestleMania has been significantly scaled back this year from the big, massive event that it usually is. In fact, so much so, it's going to be spread out over two nights. But we're not going to talk about the current WrestleMania here. We're going to get on the final leg of the road to WrestleMania in 1999, this was episode 73 of the Keep It To Yourself podcast, or the Kitty Pod, if you will, where I hopped on the WWE Network, which, by the way, in most segments, is free all this month. Not just because of WrestleMania, because, well, you're stuck at home, you need something to fill your eyeballs and your ear holes, not just my podcast blathering on. So... Back when I was paying for it, I know, cheapskate, but now's not the time for arguments. I hopped on the WWE Network, fired that bad boy up, and took a look back at Monday Night Raw, the episode thereof, the go-home episode to WrestleMania 15, which took place at the Pepsi Arena, now the Times Union Center, just down the road from Bullet House in Albany, New York, on the 22nd of March, 1999. I'm going to give you the full episode and give you a little taste of what life was like before COVID-19 as your humble host lived it. So we hope you continue to stay safe, stay clean. Hopefully you can ride this out however long this lasts. It may not be too, too long. So with that in mind, episode 73 of the Keep It To Yourself podcast, which dropped, I believe, on, I'd say late March 2019. So here is the episode. Enjoy. Take care. Bye-bye. This episode of the Keep It To Yourself podcast contains some adult language. That has to say some rather unseemly things come out of people's mouths. Some of which are mine, others not so much. The point is, there's going to be some adult content on this show. So if you have children with you in your midst while you listen to this podcast, number one, what's wrong with you? And number two, earmuffs please. You have been warned. This time on the Keep It To Yourself podcast, it's yet another trip in the Wayback Machine. Again, well, it's something important. We're taking a look back at what was considered the biggest episode of Monday Night Raw in the show's history. And it happened just down the road. All that and not much else coming up. But first, this.
Welcome to episode 73 of the Keep It To Yourself podcast, the most above average podcast ever to hit your ear holes. My name, of course, and as always, is Jason Bullitt. The man the hour, woo, too sweet to be sour, Jack. And I'm coming to you from the no longer snow-covered, but not yet green either, but still rolling hills of Saratoga County, New York. This episode is being recorded on Tuesday, the 26th of March, 2019. Not on the road, not at Franklin Alley Social Club, but we will go there in a sense coming up in this episode. Let me get my social media plugs in here quickly as I kind of had a little stumble step there, or at least it sounded. I hope you didn't catch it. You can follow me on Twitter at 518 underscore bull. You can follow me on Instagram at Jason underscore 51838. And also there's the Facebook page for you for this podcast. That's where new episodes go on the social media whenever I get them out to you. Richard Pryor getting the episode off once again as I pay tribute to the late Dick Dale and his most famous hit, an instrumental called Miserou, Lou, which you may remember from the beginning of the 1994 classic Pulp Fiction, Quentin Tarantino's finest work in my most humble opinion. And speaking of Franklin Alley Social Club, I mentioned them in just a little bit, and I'll mention them again later. I gotta lead off the shout-outs with Frank Sicari. Gotta thank him and his wife Heidi again, and also Mackenzie Holmes for their participation in my little episode last week. This was an episode I have been looking to do, A, since I started the podcast, and B, since Franklin Alley Social Club opened for business toward the end of 2017. I was very grateful to them that they were able to give of their time. They're busy people, all three of them. And, of course, thanks to my trivia team for a short, if not somewhat awkward, interview uh, just two weeks ago. Frank Sakari also participated in what could be best described as the Keep It To Yourself podcast. The last episode. And I got to explain this quickly. Last week, as you may or may not know, and if you have, then if you're in that latter category, get your head out of the sand. March Madness, the 2019 NCAA tournament started, and we cut this pretty close, but on the Thursday, I called Frank while he was busy at work, and we went over the bracket, just like on the Tony Kornheiser show, and it was a great conversation, but somehow my data connection on the phone cut off, so I was only able to get, I think it was five and a half minutes. Because I looked on the clock, I called him from my car, I looked at the timer, we went about a good 15 minutes or thereabouts. And so I had a sadly text Frank, hey, thanks for participating, thanks for bearing with me. But unfortunately, um, we had a bit of technical snafu here, so the episode was not released. I just decided, you know what, I'm going to cut my losses and we're going to save our strings for the next full episode, which you are listening to right now. So sorry, Frank. Thanks for participating in a bonus episode that never saw the light of day and a regular episode that did. And FASC was also where I want to get the next two shout-outs here, and that's to Jeff Dockham and Evan Williamson. I was going to have Jeff Dockham give up his bracket, or at least give out what he thought was going to win in the tournament, but he said he didn't know anything about this whole bracket business. However, he does know a thing or two about soccer slash football. He at one time was the president of the Albany, New York chapter of the American Outlaws. That's the fan support group or supporters club for the U.S. men's soccer team. I think the women too. And the Women's World Cup is coming up later this summer. So, Jeff, if you're listening to this, I hope to get you on there. We can talk to the women's team and also see if the men's team is going to get their shit together. 
as far as those guys, it's been a rough couple of years, man. And also, Evan Williamson gets the shout-out, too, even though I did submit a Facebook friend request. Try saying that three times fast. Talk much, Jay? But it was great seeing Evan again. It's been many, many, many years since last we saw each other. We've been in the same space together. It was great seeing Jeff Dockham again. three tie into a portion of the show that I was going to save till later on because you know the vanity portion then I get to Tales of Franklin Alley which I'm going to do right now and so ladies and gentlemen I spoiled the tease there here it is a rather awkward introduction aside here we go with yet another installment of Tales of Franklin Alley Well, we had a back-to-backer here. We already told you in the last episode how we did the week I record that episode. Well, guess what? We're back to our winning ways. Yet another gift certificate headed our way, and it looked pretty hopeless after about round number four, from what I recall. But somehow, we managed to pull it together. No boxy tiebreaker this time. It was good old-fashioned Super Street Fighter 2, and our side won the best two out of three series. We took it home, baby. We didn't get the beer. We got the shots. I cost everybody on Social Tots and the first dip in the swag bag from the sponsoring company. But we wanted some swag. I got a Founders t-shirt, 3XL. It'll shrink to my size once I get it in the wash a couple of times. But great times have by all. Great seeing Evan. Great seeing Jeff. Hopefully Jeff will be back on a more regular basis. He says he knows the guy from Bomber's Burrito Bar in Albany. He also does trivia there. Not Jeff, the other person. Pronouns, pal. All right, Vince, we'll get to you in just a minute. You're part of the big segment. However, there was one little minor incident of note. Nothing big, thank goodness. Good vibes is the rule at Franklin Alley Social Club. Check that at the door before you walk in. There was a bit of an appeal at the end of round three, and thus the end of the first half of trivia, where one of our teammates went up and talked with the host, like, hey, we should be participating in this little uh, tiebreaker of rock, paper, scissors. And while the appealing was going on, I hear a noise and I look over. Somebody had fallen out of their chair, one of the other teams. Thankfully, uh, the person involved was okay and no further incident happened during the night. Thus ends another edition of Tales of Franklin Alley. And that segues into the rest of the vanity portion of this episode, which is what I did in the two weeks since last I spoke and you listened. Well... I didn't go out for St. Patrick's Day. I wanted to do it. I texted my friends the week before this past Wednesday to see if they had any plans for St. Patty's Day. And one of my friends said that she was going to keep a low profile on the weekend. So I decided not to go out myself. Instead, I went over to my sister's house for dinner, had pizza the night before. And of course, on the day itself, the rest of the family came over to our house. And we supped on corned beef and cabbage, the traditional meal. That's not what the Irish eat, I found out. 
the American Irish be like, we don't eat that shite, what are you talking about? I'm going to come over there to America and whip your ass for me shillelagh. Apologies to any Irish people I may have offended. But anyway, my nephew doesn't really go for corned beef and cabbage, so my dad cooked a pork shoulder for him, a pork roast, if you will. And the little bugger was full of it. That's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to go into any further detail other than that. Well, either that or I just blotted out of my mind. Anyway, so no drinking for your boy biz, no carousing, no rubbing elbows with complete strangers on the day. But this week also saw the beginning of the 2019 NCAA Men's Basketball Tournament, commonly known around these parts as March Madness. And boy, is my bracket busted as all get out, let me tell you. Uh I got to back the train up here a little bit. I have three brackets entered at the tournament challenge at ESPN.com. And my main bracket is part of the Tony Kornheiser Loyal Littles group. And a slight nod to Frank Sicari, this bracket was titled Franklin Alley All-Stars. I picked Villanova to win it all in that bracket. I have two other brackets in other non-Tony Kornheiser group. One has Duke and the other has Michigan. As I record this, I just got a little text from my dad. Breaking news here on the Keep It To Yourself podcast. We will maintain radio silence now or play some music while I answer this text. back after that little interruption for personal communication outside of the podcast. Where was I? Oh yeah, I was talking about my brackets. I had Michigan in a second bracket and a third bracket, believe it or not. Shocker. Duke was the winner on that one. And I'm still alive in both those brackets. The one on the Tony Kornheiser group, though? Not so much. Had to throw away the bracket Sunday afternoon before I took care of business with the main segment of this podcast, this episode of Same. A little stumble step there, I apologize. I'm getting older, you know. I'm starting to do that more often, even outside of the podcast. The aging process is such an awful thing, but go through it, we all must. So that takes care of the brackets. And of course, March Madness played into what I did this past weekend. I got off my work at 3 o'clock on Saturday afternoon. And I texted my brother and said, Hey, I just want to let you know I'm on my way. I'll meet you you in Saratoga. This was kind of a Saturday night where I was reliving my 20s. Because I, back when I was in my mid-20s, when I joined Facebook, and I started meeting old friends of mine. We were going out to bars in Saratoga and boozing it up and carousing and having ourselves a high old time. More often than not, I would stay out late at night. I would not be home till about midnight, maybe 1 a.m. Well, I'm an older person now, as are the people in this fancy basketball team. On Yahoo Sports, my brother-in-law got me into the league. He doesn't listen to this podcast, nor do I know I do one. Another stutter step there. (laughs) Again, old age showing its ugly head here. Anyway, these were older people, and I don't know how my brother-in-law had the stamina, or any of these people for that matter. I think the oldest person there had to have been in his 50s. He was well in there. Here I am in my mid-30s. I'm considered the baby of the group. 
But long, boring tangent aside, I met up with my brother-in-law and the rest of the boys at a place that was rather familiar to me, and that was the Tin and Lint. Back when I had my high school's 10th reunion, I helped organize it, not a big deal. A friend of mine named Trevor was working there. He was the bartender. He said, oh, we have the reunion? Well, guess what? After you're done at Vapor, this nightclub at the Saratoga Casino Raceway, now the Saratoga Casino Raceway Hotel Money Grab type of place, it was announced that there were some drink specials at the Tin and Lint as he was tending bar there at the time. It's like, hey, let's everybody go to the Tin and Lint. Some people decide, nah, I've had enough. We're going to tap out. Everybody else in the group decided to pack the bar and possibly break every possible health code imaginable in that joint. It was a wonderful time, though. Great seeing old friends again. It was my first time in there since then. Well, me being on low sartan, I might have put myself in some personal danger with my health, but I felt no ill effects. I might later on down the road with the longer term, but at least in the short pull, everything was good. So I asked the bartender, the bar matron in this case, let's do bartender. Let's not get all gender specific. So I asked the person tending the bar on the day, I asked the bartender if they had a non-alcoholic option. He said, well, I can get you a bottle of Coors non-alcoholic. And I said, all right. $4. There's a dive bar. It's also the official bar seemingly of Skidmore College, so a lot of Skidmore students play there. Late at night, you can get the games of beer pong going. So I met up with the rest of the group, got to meet some of them personally. A number of them had a little game of golden tee golf going in the background. Nobody was really watching the basketball on the TVs there, including this older TV. That was a refugee of the 90s, a little burp there. I hope you didn't catch that. Now, my brother-in-law texted me and said that they were going to do the tin and lint. Not the tin and lint. They were going to do the bourbon room, which was a few doors down Caroline Street. But I think the bar just opened because it was completely dead in there. So I had to text my brother-in-law, like, hey, where are you guys at? I said, we're at the tin and lint. Like, okay, I'm just up the way here, man. I'll come meet you. So we were at the tin and lint for very long when, believe it or not, we went to the bourbon room. And we all got our drink on there. I had my first real big boy alcoholic drink. And a little nod to Rick Sakari, that's Frank's brother. I had me a little uh, Albany Distilling Company Ironweed Whiskey. I thought you were on low sartan. Well, you can't drink both at the same time. I was feeling all right. I managed to take water breaks every now and again, which was a very thoughtful thing to do. You just can't do like beer, whiskey, beer, beer, goong, 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 just, you know, right on down the line. Take some water breaks and be responsible, especially as I drove just myself to this little gathering. Well, we hang out the bourbon room for some time, watch the end of the Wofford-Kentucky game. What an exciting ending that was. Though I did read somewhere the first three days of this tournament were kind of mediocre, even though the first two days of the NCAA tournament are considered to be the very best. Every possibility is on the table. Well, I hit up the jukebox, and I said, I don't like what's playing on there. So I put in a dollar bill. I got a couple of Foo Fire songs going. I swear one of the members of this team saw me like, I, I don't know if he was being serious or he was joking. He put his like, I got to punch you in the mouth for playing this shit. Come on, man. You can tell I'm the younger one of the group with my musical tastes. Well, afterwards, it was said it was going to be time to uh, chow down, have some dinner. So I went. we all went to Bailey's Cafe right on the corner of Phila and Putnam. And it was my first time eating there. This was my first non 
Chowder Fest visit. I've been there all three times I've done Chowder Fest. I've never not gone to Bailey's. But this was the first time I was going to actually have an honest-to-goodness meal. Had me a veggie burger. Now, here's the thing with burgers when I order them at restaurants. Veggie or beef-based. The patty gets so moist, the burger usually falls apart, and I'm left having to eat the darn thing with a knife and fork as things go on. It was good, though. Well, after we all paid for dinner, I was the only one who did not drink any alcoholic bevies during that time. I also ran to Pete Meisberger, too. He came into the restaurant while we were having dinner, or at least we were waiting for it. I look, He went to the door like, oh, that guy looks familiar, and there he was. Just gave me the dap. He and his fiancée went in and had dinner. It was already crowded that night. Well, after throwing in money for dinner, I threw in about 25 bucks. We departed Bailey's, said goodbye to Peter, at least I did anyway. Made our way back to Caroline Street, and we went to this dive bar called Desperate Annie's. And we spent the majority of the time there during the whole uh, escapade. Did I go see an uh again? I thought I was going to stop doing that. Now, Desperate Ace has previously appeared in my mythology. The first summer I joined Facebook, which was 10 years ago, hard to believe, I was alerted that Desperate Ace was host to a weekly trivia night, and that's how I spent the last parts of summer 2009. I did so well as a one-person team. I single-handedly got third place, what I believe was like a pizza from Esperanto's, which we had for dinner the following night. Oh, it was good stuff. Esperanto comes in later. So we're at Desperate Annie's. We rocked the pinball machine. I beat my brother-in-law, though I didn't tell him at the time. Next time I see him, I'm going to lure that over him. I, I did very well in the ACDC pinball machine. I got the multi-ball. So I was able to rack up darn near 9 million points. The pinball wizard strikes again, ladies and gentlemen. And we really rocked out to the jukebox. And then we went right across the street to Spa City Tap and Barrel, which used to be 13, and that was previously where I had been a guest at my good friend Brandon and Brendan Polcare's 30th birthday parties, night before Easter of 2013. Water break. Pause and refreshes. And no water breaks on the day for this one. I had drunk all the alcohol I had. I forgot what I had, nor do you care. And after a rather tough time fighting the crowds, we decided to leave. And I decided I'm just going to call it quits on this one. So it was a great afternoon. It was a great evening, too. Long day's journey into night. Didn't get home until about 9.30. Well, after that long slog of the podcast, that's the social media plugs. That's the vanity. That's Tales of Franklin Alley. Ladies and gentlemen, our main event of the evening, or the morning or the afternoon, or whenever you decide to listen to this podcast, we take a look back at Monday Night Raw from March 22nd, 1999. I'm just going to give you a little background here. This was the go-home, or the term for the last episode of the Promotions Television Series before the big main event, before the big pay-per-view, rather. And we were in the height of the Attitude Era at this time. This took place on the 22nd of March, 1999, at the Pepsi Arena, now the Times Union Center, just down the road from Bullet House in Albany, New York. 12,264 people were paying money to get in. It was a sellout in their mind. We have some great matches here, including 
a promo with one of the great iconic moments in Raw history. We have the late Owen Hart and Jeff Jarrett against Gangrel and Edge in a tag championship. I'm going to spoil it for you a little bit. A lot of no contest finishes in this one. You'll find out who's to blame for that. The New Age Outlaws fighting each other in a match? You had to see it to believe it. Two of the top female wrestlers at the time, in which the women's division was a lot different then than it is now. Rock and Mankind resuming their old feud. And, of course, Stone Cold Steve Austin at the height of his powers, it seems. So, lots to get to here. That's enough of me talking. A little moon music, please, to take us down to the capital city of the Empire State. Before we really get into the proceedings here, I've called on my Patronus, Peter Winson of Greetings from Allentown, that great podcast, and I really don't want to steal his thunder, but I really enjoy what he does, and I'm as much a fan of wrestling as he is, especially of the Attitude Era. Well, before what we have now with WWE, which is a little less so. This is the wrestling that formed my high school years. Heck, Jim Ross, Jerry the King Lawler. They were the two people that formed the soundtrack of many a Monday night for your boy Biz. Not Biz Nasty, Paul Bissonette from Spittin' Chicklets, but yours truly. Anyway, we got the usual fireworks and pyrotechnics, which you don't really see with Raw nowadays. This was a whole different era 20 years ago, which nowadays seems like two lifetimes ago. But in any event, we start with the usual camera shots, the plethora of signs that Fans made it home and then they brought with them to the arena. And camera zoomed into an area of the arena where my future brother-in-law and I sat for Monday Night Raw on July 17th of 2000. The go-home for another pay-per-view, this time fully loaded. A lot lower in stature than, say, WrestleMania. Or I think it was. I wasn't sure where everything was. But anyway, we start off with an opening promo. Vince and Shane McMahon, father and son, make their way in the ring. They bring The Rock with them, and of, course, and of course it's going to be a match that sees The Rock as special guest referee, the main event between Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Big Show. Now, it's worth knowing during this promo that Vince McMahon and his family, well, you got to go back to his father, Jess McMahon, and this was through a little internet searching I was doing on Sunday to relieve myself of boredom, or at least I had the NCAA tournament on the background. I was surprised to find out that the Washington Avenue Armory a lesser-known arena, at least compared to the Times Union Center. Had a lot of history there, too, with the Albany Patroons for many, especially during the 80s. It won all those Continental Basketball Association championships. One with a future coach by the name of Phil Jackson. You may have heard of him. But way before basketball became the big sport at the Armory, the then Worldwide Wrestling Federation, the WWWF, used to run the capital city on Friday nights, and more often than not, those shows were sellouts. Pack the joint. What a way to start the weekend, huh? 
So the McMahons are not entirely foreign to the capital city of New York State. But there you go right there. Well, Vince McMahon was certainly up to his tricks to prevent Stone Cold Steve Austin from winning the WWF title at WrestleMania 15. This was but a mere chapter in what was the biggest rivalry in the history of professional wrestling, let alone the World Wrestling Federation as it was known at the time. Boy, it sure gave the WWF a shot in the arm. If you thought the Montreal Screwjob did it, this sure as hell did. They were smacking the you-know-what out of World Championship Wrestling and Monday Nitro in the ratings consistently. You certainly watch during that time. You don't need me to tell you. Meanwhile, The Rock is calling out Stone Cold Steve Austin in his own inimitable fashion. And in some cases, he kind of shows flashes of current day, meaning 2019, life with our current chief executive, sometimes talking about himself in the third person. The Rock in 1999 certainly was doing the same. Go one-on-one -on -one with yours truly, Stone Cold Steve Austin. The fact of the matter is this, is that The Rock... Calm down, people! The millions and millions of his fans! Millions and millions! this is that when it's all said and done all the rock smoke is cleared there ain't no way and the rock means no way that stone cold steve austin will ever beat the rock to become the wwf champ Well, there's The Rock issuing the challenge to Stone Cold Steve Austin and giving him the truth. Well, 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 we see Stone Cold Steve Austin out backstage watching all this, and he decides, you know what, it's about time I took action and take matters into my own hands, as he was wont to do during that time. Besides, this rivalry between him and Vincent Kennedy McMahon was the biggest thing going in wrestling and still remains the biggest thing that ever went in wrestling, ever. And I make no hyperbole of it. Walking right past a Price Chopper sign. And of course, Price Chopper, a big supermarket chain here in New York's capital region and surrounding areas. I remember applying to work there one summer and never quite got the job. I was looking to be a cashier. But that's a whole other story. That was so long ago now. This is long before self-checkouts, too, I should point out. There were still actual living human beings working the cash registers. And getting paid to do so. Well, if The Rock goes on, and just as they announce that The Rock is going to be the special guest referee, who should come out but The Rock's old nemesis, Mick Foley, aka Mankind? Just 
that The Rock and I, mankind, getting inside that very ring tonight. With the winner, the winner becoming the special referee between tonight's main event of Stone Cold Steve Austin and the big show, Paul White. What do you say, Vince? Well, it looks as though Mankind must have had the power of persuasion on his side. Or maybe he was quite the studious reader. He probably read a book like How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Vince McMahon was just the boss. He wasn't a friend. Far from it. Even though he did address everybody as pal. You know, like pronouns, pal. He meaning Mr. McMahon. <laughs> Whoops. Don't use pronouns. The upshot of all this is that Vince McMahon ultimately agrees... To let the match take place between Mankind and The Rock, with the stipulation being that the winner would be the special guest referee of the main event between Stone Cold Steve Austin and Paul White. And speaking of the Texas Rattlesnake, who by the way, his birthday is two days after mine, not that that matters. He's already got wind of the plans and he's going to derail the party. Now from what I recall, I thought the guy got thrown out of the beer truck by Stone Cold Steve Austin. However, a little look on YouTube actually showed no such thing happened. However, beforehand, there was kind of a friendly exchange between the two. I don't know what happened to the poor guy, whether he's still working for this beer company, which, by the way, you're going to see when the truck drives into the arena, right into the ring, there is a brief moment of glory worldwide for the De Crescente Distributing Company in Mechanicville, New York, just off to the east of where I'm coming to you today, or tonight, whenever you listen to this. Well, Austin drove the beer truck, Vince continues rattling on his plans, and then... This. Yes, sirree, Bob. It was one of the most iconic images in the history of Monday Night Raw and the history of the WWE and maybe the whole of the Attitude Era. But Stone Cold Steve Austin did the impossible and he drove a mother flipping beer truck to the ring at the Pepsi Arena. Little irony there or disconnect. But anyway, Austin drives the beer truck. He mounts himself on top of the trailer for said beer truck. Does his customary flip off to the crowd. He was the baby face. He was the top man. And Austin lets into the rock and he lets him know his feelings. 
Cole, truer words were never spoken. Austin was indeed ready for WrestleMania 15, six days later in Philadelphia. Also of note, before we get on with the rest of the show, there was a little kid that had a Jason 316 sign along the entrance ramp. I would like to say right now, that was not me. I was not in attendance that night. I was nowhere near the Pepsi Arena. I was a 16-year-old student at Saratoga Springs High School. It was a school night. I was at my parents' house at 12 Old Deer Camp Road in the town of Wilton, New York. And I was nowhere near the building that night. And a little addendum here before we move on. I'm looking at the Wrestling Observer comments on the Squared Circle subreddit. While I'm there, I'll never know. But one of the commenters mentioned the Crescente Distributing Company in Mechanicville. And there was a comment here as I'm looking. I should have just hit the control F. I'm like, I don't want to show the strings, but there you go. And a user by the name of God Duckman posted almost a year ago a quote, I will always be partial to the beer truck as my favorite raw moment as I was in the building in Albany when it happened. Fun fact, the truck came from Decrescentry Distributing in Mechanicville, New York, which supplies beer, wine, and soda to local restaurants. And my dad, who was a restaurant manager in Saratoga Springs, about a half hour north, knew the guy in the truck with Austin. And there was a guy by the name of Tony, because one of the other users said, you know, explain this further. And he was acquainted with the guy's dad. He's always handled delivery. So, small world after all, even on Reddit. So how do you follow up probably the greatest opening segment in the history of Monday Night Raw? With a tag team championship match. That's how. This one pits the defending champions Owen Hart and Jeff Jarrett against Gangrel and Edge. Christian accompanying them to the ring. It would be a bit of a crying shame to find out that Owen Hart would be dead within two months. And I remember hearing about that in school the next day. We were all talking about it, rather. And what a sad event that was. We were all watching wrestling, how affected we were. 
Edge, on the other hand, still alive, but unfortunately, in 2011, the WWE medical staff told Edge that if you keep wrestling like this, you're going to be paralyzed. So Edge made the difficult decision to call it quits as an active performer. He had done it the previous night at Bridgeport, Connecticut in a live WWE Monday Night Raw episode. And then a SmackDown taping which aired three days later in Albany, believe it or not. And in his last remarks is where he came up with the name Edge. Well, Adam Copeland as his government name is, and that's how it happened. Oddly enough, Deborah McMichael accompanying Owen and Double J, the current head of TNA slash Global Force Wrestling, or whatever it's called these days. Full disclosure, I watched this episode on the weekend of National Puppy Day here in the United States. And that's what the king, oddly enough, called Deborah McMichael's mm, superstructure. Let's just put it that way. And speaking of superstructures and places where... Those things could be shown on a regular basis. Well, not those places. We cut to Jim Ross, who would not be back in the Raw commentary on a regular basis until April 12th, but would call the main event at WrestleMania 15 the following Sunday after the show. He was the guest of honor at a party thrown by Albany frat Tau Kappa Epsilon. This would be a running segment throughout the show, and they would go back to the frat house somewhere in Albany, New York, from time to time. Well, King, I'm glad he's there at TKE. TKB, I know that. That's a uh, pepper keg of beer, isn't it? He's still been here. It's Tink. We got beer everywhere. And it was really appropriate that this fraternity got to host good old JR and Dr. Death Steve Williams, RIP, as U Albany was cashing in on its reputation as the top party school in the United States, having been voted that distinction in 1998, by whom I forget. A little bit of infamy 20 years later as the Teak, as it is known shorthand, the Teak fraternity at the University of Georgia was recently suspended for a racist video that made the rounds on social media. Words that were never said in 1999. You will be glad to know and you will be interested to know that your humble host is not a member of a fraternity. Rather, he is a member of Phi Eta Sigma, which is the National College Freshman Honor Society. Not a big deal. At Castle University. I was inaugurated into that chapter in the fall of 2002, having made the Dean's List both semesters of my freshman year. That means you got at least a 3.5 grade point average at the end of the semester. That was quite the achievement. I said, well, this will look good in my resume. Why not? Let's do this. Had a great advisor in Dr. John Klein. And he taught one of my psychology classes. Oh, I took, uh, I think, Human Behavior or something like that. I forget. It was so long ago now. I forgot what the exact title was. I only did attend one frat party at college, and I forgot what the name of the fraternity was. Again, very long ago. So far, I moved my college days. I did not uh, get caught in an underage drinking binge or something like that. But... I did go back to the door, and there was a bit of a dispute. I remember a uh, boyfriend and girlfriend were having one heck of an argument outside Woodruff Hall as I was doing my own little walk of shame back to my freshman dorm at Ellis Hall. All right, on to the match itself. There really wasn't much to speak of. Gangrel led the assault to start the match, but Owen Hart caught him with a spinning heel kick. Edge got a near fall after Owen Hart whipped him into the ropes. 
and after all the stuff you would expect from a wrestling match of this caliber, the match broke down after Owen Hart interfered. Owen applied the sharpshooter, another reference to Bret Hart, especially after what Mankind did during his part in the opening promo, channeling the Hitman, during the melee, and the match goes to a no contest when Public Enemy run in and they interfere with the match, and it just all breaks down after that. Well, there was worse yet to come for Deborah when she wound up getting the trademark brood bloodbath. However, it wasn't all bad for Deborah McMichael as she would go on to win the WWF Women's Championship later that year, only to lose it on a technicality. You see, boob is the same spelled forward and backward. We cut now to an interview given by a guy named Lucas from WWE.com who looks amazingly like a refugee from the high school HV club. All of a sudden, he's interviewing the New Age Outlaws promoting their title versus title match. Then after the break, we've got the McMahons, father and son, along with the Stooges, Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe, in the locker room ahead of the Greenwich Street Fight, which we're going to see later on. But back to the card itself, we've got the aforementioned New Age Outlaws, the Road Dog Jesse James, at the time the WWF Hardcore Champion, taking on... His former New Age Outlaws tag partner, Badass Billy Gunn, the Intercontinental Champion. Nothing personal, he said before the match, before he did his little, If you ain't down with that, we got two words for you. Well, my two words would be no contest. Spoilers. But we do have some little looks to the future here. And if you want to blame someone for starting the trend of the crowd yelling wrestlers catchphrases at live events... You can lay the blame on Brian Armstrong's feet. Of course, Brian Armstrong, a former Marine, thank you for your service. He is the son of the legendary wrestler Bullet Bob Armstrong, who made a name for himself with the NWA and also with Smoky Mountain Wrestling. And what a tough SOB he was by all accounts. We have a little lockup into a side lock. To start the match, Badass Billy Gunn gives the shoulder block on the way. And then some good old-fashioned Southern wrestling before Road Dog Jesse James gets the old juke and jive to his former tag team partner. There wasn't much to speak of on this match. I watched it intently. But I do have some observations. Michael Cole, who's subbing in for the aforementioned good old JR and Jerry the King Lawler, were selling the match more than WrestleMania 15. But there were the constant plugs for the pay-per-view, trying to get people into purchasing the event. This was long before the internet and the WWE Network, on which I viewed this episode. And of course, the commentators these days don't really sell the match. They're more than, you know, flinging corporate sponsors and selling what you're watching on television or on your device or whatever. Like I said, this was a no contest, and that's what... Happened when Goldust, Al Snow, and Val Venus interfered and attacked both the combatants. The three attackers, though, were sent to the floor. So the New Age Outlaws, even though they were fighting each other, they worked together at a clean house. Now we cut the backstage at the Pepsi Arena slash Times Union Center. They're just minding their own business, trying to get coffee for the boss, when all of a sudden, they're confronted by person or persons unknown. Who were these goons that attacked the Stooges? 
Well, after a commercial break, we see the aftermath. There's a referee who's been left bleeding somewhat and looking to seek medical attention. Well, not just the referee. The Stooges didn't look any the worse for wear. Well, in a little twist here, we found out who it was. It was actually LOD2000, Hawk and Animal. Hawk managed to get his shit together personally to lead the attack. And, of course, we have a Paul Ellering sighting, not that you'd notice. And this was payback for what happened when Briscoe and Patterson posed as LOD2000 on Monday Night Raw the week before. They had their revenge, LOD2000 did. Pronouns, pal, God damn it. Now we go back to the ring. The Blue Meanie, remember him? Walks out and he cuts a promo calling out Ken Shamrock for his misdeeds. Wanted him to take him on. Well, he gets a Shamrock all right. Almost a week after St. Patrick's Day. But it's not Ken. It's actually Ryan Shamrock who came out. And I forget which episode of Something to Wrestle With where Bruce tells the story of how they discovered Ryan Shamrock. But the person who portrayed her is no longer in the business. She settled down. She's got a husband. She's got a kid. And I believe she runs a yoga studio somewhere in Northern California if Wikipedia serves. I did all my research on Sunday trying to find out where these people are in 2019. Well, Blue Me decides to get Ryan on his lap and all set ready to administer some punishment of his own when all of a sudden Big Brother comes out ready to defend the family honor. But Goldust attacks Shamrock, putting the kibosh on that. But Blue Meanie gets his revenge and hits Shamrock with a chair. All oh, the Attitude Era. And Shamrock gets forced out of the ring, but he would soon have his revenge. Or so we'd hope at WrestleMania 15. After another check-in at the UA frat party in Jim Ross's honor, an interesting tidbit in the WWE Network broadcast. And that was an old-school commercial featuring Mick Foley for Chef Boyardee overstuffed ravioli. I haven't had Chef Boyardee or anything like that in a long time, but I ate it quite a bit when I was a kid. Mom, God rest her soul, would cook that up for lunch sometimes. I know Dad would have it occasionally on the weekends. Well, after that commercial, we got some attitude ear ridiculousness proving that all that glittered was not gold in the period between 1997 and 2001. There's a promo slash skit featuring wrestler Beaver Cleavage. And about this, I say the less said, the better. I really did not like the character at all. And I got to say it right now, Sean Stasiak, not my favorite wrestler of all time. He's not Stone Cold Steve Austin, nor was he The Rock or Mankind or even Hulk Hogan. Or even the Macho Man Randy Savage. Uh -huh. And of course, Sean Stasiak later appeared as a member of Right to Censor, whom I saw on Monday Night Raw a good 16 months later with my future brother-in-law. Alright, it's time to bring on the ladies, as JR said at the frat party. And with that out the way, we bring on the WWF Women's Championship match between Sable and Ivory. Ivory made her debut at the Raw that aired the night before St. Valentine's Day Massacre the month previous. And that was because USA Network was airing the Westminster Kennel Club Dog Show. And as a fan of wrestling back in those days, I found it rather annoying that 
Raw would be shunted to the Saturday previous because of two events. One in February, the aforementioned dog show, and of course toward the end of every summer with the U.S. Open Tennis Tournament. I want to see Stone Cold Steve Austin, not Andre Agassi. No disrespect to Andre Agassi. My sister played tennis in high school and later went on to Nazareth College in Rochester, New York, or outside Rochester, and that's where she met my future brother-in-law, who I've mentioned a couple of times already. Helped get me into wrestling. Well, it's a big improvement in the WWF and WWE's treatment of the women's division as compared to 20 years ago. You had the Women's Royal Rumble last year at WrestleMania 34. And this was quite a moment for Sable as she was coming off her appearance in Playboy magazine. And this is back when appearing in Playboy was still a thing. Nowadays, you probably can just get on your computer or your mobile device and uh, pleasure yourself to your heart's content. Let's just put it that way. I'm trying not to get too dirty here, but that's just how it is. Sable comes out first, and then Ivory comes out accompanied by D'Lo Brown, who joins Michael and King at commentary. Gives a little shout-out to his former Nation of Domination partner, Mark Henry, who was suffering an injury but was on the comeback at the time. Well, during the match, as it starts off, the team of PMS, which was Jacqueline and Terry Runnels, walked out to confront D'Lo. And, of course, D'Lo Brown was none too happy that Terry Runnels has interfered in the match. Well, at least come out to confront D'Lo anyway. Sable, put it to Tori in the ring. What the hell you want, huh? Why don't you get your $2 slutty ass out of here? Whoa, whoa! Woo! The match again, nothing to speak of here. Just typical women's wrestling of the Attitude Era. Ivory gets a series of near falls, but gets attacked by Jacqueline. However, this match did not end in a no contest like the previous two. Sable wound up defending her towel by beating Ivory clean, but... Here comes Tori afterwards to attack Sable. Not Tori Wilson, just another person named Tori. And there ended that. Appropriately enough, Cher had the number one song around this time in 1999, Believe. It was one of the first songs to use this little thing called Auto-Tune. It was rather unusual. I didn't really think much about it, but I knew like, well, 10 years from now, hip-hop artists are going to make absolute careers out of it. And of course, bury the darn thing in the process to the point of annoyance. They're like, really? The death of Auto-Tune have a moment of silence, as Jay-Z would say. Well, here's something that's not annoying. Our first big match of the evening, The Rock versus Mankind, a non-title bout as The Rock was the defending WWF champion and the top heel in the company at the time. Mick Foley, the pride of Long Island as his opponent. This is a non-title bout, but also, as previously stated, 
The winner of this match would become the special guest referee of the main event between Stone Cold Steve Austin and Paul White, The Big Show. Well, before the match, we got ourselves a billboard from Michael Cole for Lucky Dog 10-10-3-4-5. That screams late 90s or turn of the millennium right there, depending on your outlook. I never used such numbers, especially when I went away to college. But I think I may have used 1-800-COLLECT to call home in a few times, mainly because I was calling from out of state. This was a way different time, as you could tell. I even got a calling card one time to use whenever I wanted to call home. I think that was my junior year at Castleton. But back to this now. The Rock leads the charge on Mankind to start the match, gets him out of the ring, and Mankind got the Rock to plow into the steel steps around the side of the ring. And classic attitude era move, the Rock tries to hit Mankind in the back with a steel chair. But referee Tim White pulls the chair away and says, No, you ain't having this here. Hell no. Tim White will get involved a bit later on here, so stay tuned for that. I really enjoyed The Rock's face run later in the year when he turned his back on the corporation, did the face turn, and became the top guy in the company in the absence of Stone Cold Steve Austin, who was recovering from injuries he suffered in the ring. Well, after Rock gets knocked down, Mankind does his version of the people's elbow. However, The Rock doesn't get a taste of his own medicine just by rolling out of the way. Then Mankind and Rock brawl near the announcer's table. And then The Rock grabs the headset off Michael Cole. And he does his own little commentary. Coming back from the ad break, we get both principles of the main event. Big Show is upset that he got chased out of the ring after chokeslamming Mankind, thus disqualifying The Rock. And then we see Stone Cold Steve Austin getting ready. Not really any promo or skit or anything, but it's just him getting ready for the main event against The Big Show. And of course, that leads us to the next match, which is Kane, the future mayor of Knox County, Tennessee, versus Goldust. Now, I mentioned before that Terry Reynolds came out during the women's title match between Ivory and Sable. Terry is part of a rich family history in wrestling involving the Reynolds family. Terry is the ex-wife of Goldust, who we're going to see in this match. The half-sister-in-law, if there is such a term, of Cody Rhodes, ex of the WWE and Ring of Honor Wrestling, and now with All Elite Wrestling, this new promotion to come down the block. And, of course... By her marriage to Dustin Runnels, was briefly the daughter-in-law of the American Dream. Thus, the road you understand. She was briefly part of one of the greatest families in the history of professional wrestling, if you will. If you've listened to this podcast long enough, I've channeled Dusty Rhodes and how I talk when I say the words "if you will." I say it as though I was the late Virgil Riley Runnels Jr. And of course, Dusty has made an appearance at the beginning of every episode, saying, "The man, the hour, whoo." Too sweet to be sour, Jack, if you will. That's right. So I'm going to stop talking like this and go back to my normal voice and get right to the match here, question mark. Kane comes out to the ring first, and as he does his slow walk to the ring, we are shown a replay of the incident where Kane shot a fireball at Triple H, but it actually hit China, may she rest in peace, on Monday Night Raw two weeks earlier. 
and Turner's being carried to the back by Triple H in a scene almost but not quite reminiscent of that memorable scene from the Bride of Frankenstein. Well, Kane's in the ring, does his thing with the pyrotechnics, of which there are less nowadays at WWE events, especially Monday Night Raw and SmackDown tapings. And then, here comes Goldust. He makes his way to the ring. But, Goldust, for some reason, brings out a pyro gun and knocks Kane to the ground with it after firing it. Then we find out it's not actually Goldust, it's Triple H disguised as Goldust. And thank goodness we don't have fireballs and pyro guns after scenes like this anymore in wrestling. It's a lot safer now for the town. Forget concussions. How about dangerous stuff like fire and whatnot? Well, a brawl breaks out between Triple H slash Goldust and the Big Red Machine. Not to be confused with any member of the 1970s Cincinnati Reds, especially Pete Rose who almost a year earlier got tombstone by the very same Kane at WrestleMania 14. And during the brawl, Tim White, there's that man again, mama, was attacked for the second time tonight while trying to break up the skirmish. Tim White has had a great career in wrestling, and afterwards, he later became a barkeep in his hometown of Cumberland, Rhode Island. The name of the bar escapes me, but don't bother going there next time you're in Cumberland, Rhode Island, because that bar has since closed up shop. Well, after that little incident, we go back to the Teak House somewhere in Albany, New York, probably in the student ghetto of that city. We have students living off campus, not only attend U Albany, but also St. Rose as well. This was mostly a purple and gold affair, and what a big year it was for U Albany. The New York Giants were still attending training camp in the summertime. And on the athletic front, UAlbany was making the move to Division I. They would join the America East Conference, and they would have a lot of success with the basketball team, making trips to the NCAA tournament. Last year was magical with the men's lacrosse team. Their deep run to the national championship, well, they lost to Yale in the Final Four, in the semifinals. But back to this incident here. Everything's going well. JR and Dr. Death Steve Williams are having themselves a high old time, more the former than the latter. And all of a sudden, you can't have a frat party without having a few gate crashers. And in this case, it's hardcore Holly himself. Decides to crash the party, confronts JR, and Dr. Death Steve Williams does not take too kindly at all to this little interference. And a hardcore match takes place right then and there. No title on the line, though. As I've said before, the road dog Jesse James has the belt, and there was no way he was going to crash this party and put the title on the line. The two guys brawl all throughout the lower floor of the TKE, or Teak House. And technical difficulties ensue from time to time. And of course, the satellite signal ultimately cuts out when the brawl moves into the kitchen of all places. They wreck the aquarium, part of the stove, refrigerator, to say it was mayhem could well be understatement of the year. Either of 1999 or 2019, we're not quite sure. <laughs> but one thing's for certain, ladies and gentlemen. I cannot wait for the episode of Something to Wrestle With when Bruce asked Conrad, Now, trap me up here, Bruce. Did the WWF clear this with the brass of SUNY Albany? Well, better off campus than on campus, I'll tell you. 
That was a little exchange between Stone Cold Steve Austin and Mankind being very terse with his advice toward Mick Foley ahead of their main event. Meanwhile, elsewhere in the locker room to the Pepsi Arena, here comes Shane McMahon, uh, the locker room ready for his Greenwich Street Fight. But before we get to that, we got a billboard for TV Guide. This one, TV Guide was still local, and I got to see all the great channels that were available in the market for the fine folks in that part of the country. Not like the big national publication that it is today. Oh, tempera omores. Well, back to Shane O'Mac getting ready for his Greenwich Street Fight as he walks out to an area outside the Pepsi Arena. And I can still remember that parking garage, too. I've parked my car in there for many an event. And, of course, my dad did, too. And, as did my future brother-in-law a year later for Monday Night Raw. Now, around the capital region of New York State, Albany has had a reputation as being a crime-ridden city. The big corruption takes place at the state capital. Well, did I go there? I did. Sorry. Not sorry. An inappropriate rim shot, but a good excuse. Well, back to more serious issues. Despite efforts to reverse the trend of crime in Albany, unfortunately, New York's capital city is still ridden with that problem in 2019. But back in the day, it almost seemed like a real problem, at least to a 16, 17-year-old person like myself. Have you ever liked anything so much you wish you were a part of it? That's how my brain works. I never told anybody about this, but I had a little wrestling fantasia back in the day. I admit to my brother on the way to Monday Night Raw in July of 2000. I aged myself five years older, which means I would be a really old man by my standards. I'd be in my early 40s now. And I would be billed from Albany, but specifically the West Hill neighborhood. I was inspired by Taz, and he was billed from the Red Hook section of Brooklyn. I thought West Hill was like the rough part of town. Bad. Saratoga was a little genteel, despite the fact that in Ring of Honor, Bobby Fish was billed from the spa city. But he's part of the capital region just the same. Bobby Fish nowadays is in NXT with the Undisputed Era. Kyle O'Reilly and other expats from Ring of Honor. But back to 99 here. The match was a bit of a botch because Shane got a little help from his buddies, the Mean Street Posse, thus rendering the match a no contest. The sweater vest set got away soon afterwards, speeding onto Beaver Street and presumably headed for I-87 to make a quick getaway. They certainly weren't headed for, say, City Beer Hall, as I think it wasn't open during that time, located right near the Times Union Center, not a sponsor. I really don't go into downtown Albany that much, except for Times Union Center events. And even then, it's a bit risky. But that's just me. Watching this match on the WWE Network, it was a little amazing to see how somewhat different New York's capital city looked in 1999 as compared to nowadays. And I had to have a bit of a sly chuckle of how the cities of Greenwich and Stanford, Connecticut, where WWE is based, was considered to have gangs, where it was like one of the richest areas of the United States of America. We had a little gang thing going on, nothing violent like Chris versus Bloods. We had our own version of the Wu-Tang Clan versus the Black Italian Brotherhood, or B.I.B. Big shout to Adam Parada on that one. Ah, those were the days. But then again, we knew to stay away from Albany, we'd certainly be punching above our weight, and some of us probably would come home in body bags. But that's just me. On to the second to last match on the card, and it's a six-man tag team match, which pits 
Two wrestlers that sadly are no longer with us. At least they're amongst the participants. The big boss man, Ray Trailer, Test, who was previously a bodyguard with Motley Crue and was to have been married to Stephanie McMahon later that year, but her now real-life husband, Triple H, wound up spoiling the plans there. And, of course, they're joined by Ken Shamrock, and they take on the team of The Undertaker and the Acolytes, Bradshaw and Farouk. All for the days when Bradshaw was just a wrestler and not sucking ass on the commentary with Michael Cole. This was also a no contest. And after some semblance of a match, all six men brawled onto the floor and into the crowd, thus rendering a no contest. Now, I'm starting to think with all these no contest finishes, Vince Russo clearly had his hand in the booking and in the writing and whatnot. Not the booking, but certainly how things were planned out and how they were carried out. Bro. Now, during the quote-unquote match, if you want to call it that, there was a beach ball sighting as this quote-unquote match kicked off. And I remember that beach balls and crowd were such a thing around the turn of the millennium. In fact, two years plus after this, I remember being my high school graduation at the Saratoga Performing Arts Center. And we came close to having a beach ball hit my neck. They were putting it out in the crowd there. It came pretty close to where we were sitting. And I didn't look around to see what was going on. Me being the observant type, the hyper-observant type, all to the point of nosiness and being an annoying pest in that regard. I can only assume that a member of the faculty caught the eagle eye and removed the offending object from the arena and kind of scolded the person for doing such a thing. Well, after a quick fade to black, kinda, we go to commercial break and coming back, here comes Vince McMahon with a beer-soaked $3,000 suit, according to Jerry the King Lawler. And boy, is he jerked off. So much so that he orders a replay of Stone Cold Steve Austin driving the beer truck into the ring from the beginning of the show almost two hours earlier. And he repeats his guarantee that Stone Cold will not be walking out of WrestleMania 15 as the new WWF champion. And speaking of which, The Rock returns... But this time, he's not going to steal the headset off Michael Cole. There'll be one waiting for him when he gets to the commentary table to join Michael and Jerry the King Waller for the main event of the night. The Big Show, Paul White versus the Texas Rattlesnake himself with Mankind as the guest referee as stated previously. Jerry the King Waller had a great line saying that Austin was suffering from fee-fi-phobia. I gotta admit, the King's jokes were somewhat dated, if not old hat, even in 1999. Great commentator, but come on, man. And it's at this point, there's the seemingly ubiquitous announcement from Michael Cole, which was sometimes said by good old JR himself, where he told the viewers that there are no more commercial breaks on this night. We're going to go straight through to the bitter end. The two principals are in the ring. There's a stare down between Stone Cold and The Big Show before Stone Cold attacks to open the match. And boy, was the crowd hot for this one. Well, at least for the most part. There was not a dead crowd for most of the match. Maybe because there was some mostly uh, no contests all this night. Stone Cold goes in to work White's nether regions, gets the low blow, right in the old twig and berries. And he didn't attempt to ram them into the turnbuckle, 
And then Paul Wright reacted, thus sending Stone Cold tumbling into the crowd. Or at least that little area between where the crowd was seated. That little no man's land. Sometime later, Mankind was supposed to be impartial, but he took Stone Cold's advice and attacks Paul White from behind after Stone Cold gives Big Show an eye rake. Aaron Paul White, same difference. Stone Cold then attempts a stunner, his first of three on the match, but he ran to expose Turnbuckle, which Stone Cold exposed himself, and Paul White was quick to use that against him. Meaning Stone Cold. Pronouns, pal. How many times do I have to tell you? God damn it. Whoa, sorry, Vince. I would not make a great WWE commentator, I'll tell you that. I'd probably do a better job than what they have now, but still. Back to the match here. Mankind attacks the Big Show, so much for being impartial. Well, that's what happened to your guest referee, so. Mankind attacks Paul White, but Big Show slams Stone Cold after his second attempt at a stunner. And this causes Stone Cold to stagger out of the ring onto the floor. He tries calling back, but Big Show gets him out of the ring again. Big Show then presses Stone Cold onto the floor. All the while, there is some great chemistry in the commentary between The Rock, Michael Cole, and Jerry the King Lawler. Meanwhile, back in the ring, Austin escapes the Big Show carry into the corner, but Stone Cold eventually gets run into said corner. Well, sometime later, Mankind takes a chair and thus matters into his own hands and threatens the Big Show with one big old wallop with it. And later on, Big Show misses what would be his version of the five-knuckle shuffle, a little sign of things to come with a much smaller but stronger John Cena. But he misses, winds up selling the wrist injury, and Austin whips Paul White into the roast but lands into two consecutive bear hugs. Now it's at this time that Mankind in his role as special guest referee starts to count out Austin, but this only gives Austin a chance to build the fire and build to the finish, but he gets a near fall for his troubles. Well, Stone Cold being Stone Cold, he knows just what to do. He hits the big show with a series of chair shots, which is more than you could say for Mick Foley, and then eventually hits the Stone Cold Stunner. Third time lucky to get the win and a big pop from the assembled masses at the Pepsi Arena. It's afterwards that Rock storms the ring to fight Austin to build up to the main event at WrestleMania 15 and hits the rock bottom to end the show. And that, ladies and gentlemen, finally, and I mean that, ends it for this recap of Monday Night Raw, the biggest Raw in history and certainly lived up to the hype, for the most part, March 22nd, 1999. Well, gang, thus ends the longest episode I've done in a while to keep it to yourself podcast. And I certainly thank you for joining the ride and bearing with me for this look back at WWE history and seeing everything through fresh eyes. It's kind of fascinating, especially with something that happened 20 years ago and how innocent those times were. 
and how much has changed in the intervening years. I certainly appreciate your listening here. Never take the audience for granted. When you get a second, be a dear and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. A five-star rating, a good write-up to help me grow the show. And nothing like professional wrestling to help grow an audience for a podcast, right? Well, I'll be the first to tell you. So, alright, we're doing the ending. Yeah, I got a little lost there. Sorry. While I was wrapping it up here, you can listen and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen on Spotify, Podbean, TuneIn, Himalaya, well, SoundCloud, or the podcatcher of your choosing. Doesn't matter. Hope you enjoyed the show. I'll be back sometime soon. Thanks again for listening. And as always, and above all else, wait for it. Wait for it. Keep smiling. And two more words. Enjoy it. Miss you, Brody. Miss you too, Mom. Sit, boo-boo, sit. Good dog. (laughs) WNYT, Albany, New York. Out of an abundance of caution over COVID-19, the Keep It To Yourself podcast was not taped in front of a live studio audience.